Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So a little boy in school was busily drawing a picture. In school one day his teacher came up and said, well, what are you doing? What are you drawing there? And without even looking up, the little boy said, I am drawing a picture of God. The teacher said, you can't draw a picture of God. You know, you can't, no one's ever seen him. No one knows what he even looks like. And the little boy said, as soon as I get done, they'll know what he looks like. Right? All right. Point of that story, <laughs> tough crowd, is that um, we, have, we all have our own different views of who God is, of who God is and what God looks like, how he thinks, how he acts, how he works in the world, how he works in our lives. If I gave each, each of you a piece of paper and said, draw a picture of God and, draw, and, and write a description about him, we'd have 300 different drawings and 300 different descriptions of who he is. Now, what we perceive God to be and what we, um, what we perceive him to look like are as varied as our own personalities. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that none of us would even come close to what he looks like or what he acts like, what he does, or who God truly is. Um, speaking of that, did you know that God forbid people, said, don't even make an image of me? He said, not even images of anything else, but he said, don't make an image of me either. Don't even try that. Nothing made on earth by human hands could ever come close to reflecting or representing um, God's image. So any attempt um, to turn out those pictures um, would have turned out like, um, have you ever been to one of those places like Six Flags or something? They've got those photo booths with the Western wear, and you dress up like Wyatt Earp and hold the shotguns and things like that. That's kind of how I feel like, you know, that's our real depiction of us. I think if we try to draw a picture of God, that's kind of along, along the lines of how they would end up being. Needless to say, okay, um, it, we would come up with a rather interesting, maybe, but a rather poor rendition of who God is. Um, any image of God we try to conjure up would just be, would fall short. Our finite minds um, simply cannot conceive of an infinite God. Okay, so now as we continue on with our series um, that we're calling um, What's in a Name, you know, based on Shakespeare's question, What's in a Name, uh, we're going to be unpacking and, unpacking and examining uh, the names of God as he presents them to us in the Bible, the way that God presents them to us in his word. Um, and at this point, in times like this, I like to quote uh, one of my favorite writers is A.W. Uh, a. Tozer. He says this, uh, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because our sense of worship is based on that thought, what we think about when we think about God. Our sense of how we put our trust in God, how we put our faith in God, it's all based on our thought about God. So let's take that a little bit further. You know, if we look at um, cultures in the history of the world, there's no people group that's ever risen above their religious beliefs. Their religious beliefs are on top and then how they act and things are underneath that. So then, maybe the most important question before the church and the, and the individuals that make up the church, right, is about God himself. Right? So if, how do we think about God? What do we think about God? What do we think about God himself? Who do we perceive him to be? I'll carry that point out maybe a little bit further to put a point on it maybe, um, on how and why God reveals himself to us through his words. Why does he do that? Because this, my question is this. Pop Tozer's quote back up there again. What comes to our minds when we think about God, right? Now the question is, what are we basing those thoughts on? 
when we think about God, what are we basing those thoughts on? Are they based on the words that God gives us, or are they based on good fuzzy feelings? Are they good? Are they based on what other people have told us? You know, when we talk about God, we start sentences like, "Well, I always thought." Or I always hope, or I always think, well, you know, if we talk about God, we'll see, we'll define it by who he is, right? So if that's the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind by extension, then it's vitally important, vitally important for us to know what our thoughts are based on. You with me? We got to know what our thoughts are based on. If our thoughts are about God or the most important thing, what are those thoughts based on? Well, here's the thing. And it's the thing we really need to keep in mind while we're reading through the Bible. While we're reading through the Bible, while we're looking at talking about Bible verses here on Sunday morning, on Wednesday nights, or wherever we are, the thing that we really need to keep in mind is, is that God, in his own words, is revealing himself to us through his words. And so then when we think about God, about God, what, what about God is important, we, you know, it, based on, again, based on what? Are we filling in the blanks ourselves or are we actually using the words that he's given us? What we have to keep in mind, again, though, is God is revealing himself and, and really, what God is really, when we talk about God revealing himself to us, what he's really revealing, what he's really talking about is what he thinks about us and how he works in our lives. So it's not this academic study and this list of things and attributes of God that we just hang up on a wall someplace and just say, now we understand that. No, there are things that we have to, as we've been saying, we have to yada that. We have to know that. We have to bring it into our lives, right? That God is, is telling us these things so that he can interact with us, right? Know that he can interact with us and that he does interact with us. So what does God think about us? So then when we Christians um, use uh, when, we, when we Christians use the word God, right, unfortunately there's a lot of fogginess and ambiguity to that word. But somehow, you know, as we talk and as I, I, I meet with people, and I, we, we somehow all assume that we're all talking about the same thing and that we all have the same views and beliefs. But in point of fact, we don't. But just like I said a few moments ago, if we were all to draw a picture of God or write a statement about God, one of two things is going to happen with that. If I ask you to draw a picture of God or make a statement about God, one of two things is going to happen. First, they're going to be very generic terms. Um, the love Jesus sort of theology, right? The feel-good sort of theology. Second, when pressed for details, we're going to have very drastically different views of who God is and what his will is for us, what he thinks, how he delights in us, and how he works in the world. The fact is, he does delight in us, as an artist delights in his work. Yeah. To yada, to know that you are, right? How about Ephesians 2.10, for example? For we are God's masterpiece, right? This is what God says about you, that you are his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned long ago, literally before he laid the foundations of the earth. So now we broke the ice on this series last Wednesday, and I'm not expecting everybody to have been here, but uh, I'd like to continue um, with that conversation that we started um, and to look at it and to dig into it a little bit deeper, the names of God. Not really picking up again where we left off because, like I said, I realize not everyone is here on Wednesday, and um, repetition is valuable to all of us. So again, the series talks about is, is focusing on what is in a name. What's in a name? 
So now, rather than starting with the first occurrence of what we see God's name in the Bible, because we've talked about that before, and I'm going to circle around back, and we're going to pick that up later. But I want to see the names that God uses to describe himself. I'm going to start with the most common name of God in the Bible. In point of fact, if we were to read through the Bible with, um, with one of those abacuses, you know, to keep track of how many things happen, or maybe the tally marks, right? We'd find that God uses his name, uh, this name, over 6,000 times, like 6,500 times. So we see it as God's most famous name. And now to fully understand why and how God uses this name, um, we need to look at the life of Moses, which Lyle just read about here a little bit. Because it's in Exodus 3. It's in Exodus 3 where God first reveals his name to Moses. He first reveals that name to Moses. And as we look at how God does that, we start to get an understanding from God. From God himself about himself. We get an understanding from God himself about God himself. God first reveals that name to Moses, and as we look at how God does that, we start to get a, a better understanding of that. Moses' life um, breaks down into three very neatly, tidy 40-year periods. Right? The first 40 years of his life, he was the prince of Egypt, and he was in the palace and in the throne, and then um, some things started to break down a little bit, and there was an unfortunate incident where he accidentally killed um, a, a, an Egyptian guard, um, and then he kind of, he got out of Dodge for a while. He, he split, he panicked, and he, he left uh, and fled into the wilderness. And then um, he spent the next 40 years um, with his father-in-law, Jethro, um, you know, um, tending his sheep and taking care of things like that. By the way, they, that's when you know you're at a low point in life, when you're 60 years old and you're living in your father-in-law's basement and uh, tending his sheep. That doesn't get much lower than that. So that's where he is. So now while Moses is out there <clears throat> in the wilderness tending these sheep, feeling exiled from his, his former life where he spent his first 40 years, God comes to talk with Moses in the form of a burning bush. And several amazing things happen here. And we're going to break this whole thing down. We have a little bit before. We're going to do this again. I'm not going to do the whole thing this morning. I'm going to stick to the point this morning. But there's a lot to learn from here in this, in this historical moment. God comes to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses has two choices here. He can either keep going, right? Because he's busy. He's got sheep here. We got a grazing schedule to keep. We got to get to the next watering hole. I got things to do. I got places to go. But here's this bush burning over here. And Moses says this. When the Lord saw that he had... Oh, I'm sorry. It was before that. Um, Moses says, I must turn aside. And see what's happening here, right? He takes time out of his schedule. He takes time out of what he's doing. And he turns aside to go see what is happening. Like I said, he could have kept going like we do, right? We got kids that got to get to soccer practice or got to get to a game or got to get to, got to get to, got to get to. We don't have time to stop and look over here, right? But God is calling Moses. Moses sees something out of the ordinary. He sees something unusual. And Moses says those words. He says, I must turn aside. Literally, I must put my gaze, my attention over here to see what's happening. And then that's when the amazing thing happens. Verse 4 here. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to look, God called to him, called to Moses from the midst of the bush. He called his name, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. So please tell me you're seeing the sequence of events here. When, when God saw that Moses had turned aside, then God called to Moses. 
Right? He didn't call Moses from, you know, 50 yards away from the bush. Right? Moses had to take some time, had to turn aside to come over to investigate, if you will, to see what, what was going on over here. Then he discovered it was God talking to him. You know, people tell me all the time, well, I don't hear from God. God doesn't give me any signs. He doesn't give me any message. I feel so far away from God. And I simply ask in some form of another, have you turned aside to look? Have you taken time to turn aside? Have you stopped everything else? You know, like I said, God didn't call Moses from the bush until Moses came over to it to investigate, to be present in that moment. And then God started talking to him. And then God approached him. But wait, there's more here. Like I said, there's so much going on in this passage here. Verse 5, God said to Moses, he said, don't come near here. He said, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's a unique word here for holy in the Hebrew language. This is kodesh. And it means what we would think, to be separated, to be set apart, to be holy. And this, in Exodus 3, chapter 3, verse 5, this is the first time we see the word holy in the Bible. This is what God is talking about here. And then God says to Moses, I am the God of your father. Right? He starts describing him from the very beginning, himself from the very beginning. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Things that Moses knows, but probably hasn't heard for a while. But he's aware of it, and he knows it, but he probably hasn't heard it for a while. He says, I've seen the sufferings of my people in Egypt and heard their cries. We could go on and on about that verse right there. I've seen the sufferings of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries. And forward then to verse 10, it says, Therefore, God says, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And now if we look at the history that's happened here in Moses' life, you know, Moses tried this once before. He tried to lead his people. He tried to be the one in charge. He tried to basically almost start to take them out of Egypt. And they said, go back to your palace, prince boy. We don't want anything to do with you. You're not one of us. You might have been born one of us, but you've been over there for so long. You have no idea what's going on here. You have no idea what we're going through. Pretty much just the scram is what they said to him. So this is what Moses is thinking, right? God says, I'm going to bring you. You're going to be the one that's going to bring my people out of, is out of Egypt. And Moses has got to be thinking, you got the wrong guy. For several reasons, mostly because I've tried this before and I really can't go back there. I don't know if you know this whole history, he says to God, but there's this thing that happened and I'm out here now. But then he asks some very simple questions. He says, at least it helped me here. He says, if I do this, I tried to do it on my own before and it didn't work. If I do this now, they're going to ask me who sent me to do this. What am I going to say? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is a Hebrew word that you um, likely don't know, but probably wish you did. It's almost like a karate sound to me if you say it. Um, the word I am is the Hebrew word hayah. Everybody try it. Hayah. And if you're not spitting on your neighbor, you're not doing it quite right. Hayah. It's, it's significant, not just, be, not just because it's the first time that God has revealed it. Not just because it's the first time God has revealed it. But also because it's how God introduced himself to, to the reunion. 
that was about to happen with his people, right? He's about to have with, the, with his people, with, the, with God's people. Hayah means I am God. I am. And, and God is saying, I don't have a beginning. I won't have an end. I have always been and I will always be. This is why I confused you so much. If you were here last Wednesday night, why I confused you so much with the Hebrew verb, you know, the, the perfect tense of the Hebrew verb. It's, it's confusing to us because God says, I always was, I, I am, and I always will be in that one word. Now, here's where things get interesting for us and where we really need to clear up who we're talking about and how we're talking about how God has revealed this and how God presented this, presents this to us. So Hayat has been translated, transliterated maybe basically, um, to the name Jehovah or Yehovah, right? And that's one they were very familiar with, Yehovah, right? And because of this historical moment that we're learning more about here, um, the Jewish people thought right here, this is as God reveals himself to us, the Jewish people thought this name too holy to ever speak. So no speaking of this, and mostly because um, they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And they thought, well, if we never say it, we're going to reduce our chances of taking the Lord's name in vain, which we really want to avoid. So they didn't even say it, right? Don't say it, lessen your chances of messing up. So much so that um, through history, earlier history, we actually lost um, the way to pronounce it because nobody ever said it, and we had lost the way to pronounce it. To confuse it even more, when the scribes, um, copied passages, and I've told you about that before, how the meticulous method that they used to, to copy um, diff, uh, the manuscripts of the Bible and, and the different steps that it had to go through to make sure that it was accurate. And then when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found out how accurate they really were. These guys nailed it every time because of the process they went through. One of the processes was um, reading it out loud. Well, when they came to the name that we say Jehovah, um, they skipped it. They just would silently read over that name without saying it. That's how serious they were about it. Additionally, just to make absolute sure no one would ever say it, when they wrote it down, they removed the vowels from it. So there was just the four consonants in there, the, just four consonants, used in the name of God, uh, the, the name that God uses to describe himself. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Um, simply, and that literally means the four letters. And it looks like this. We've got a picture of it here. It's Yod, um, He, Vav, and He. So the personal way to pronounce this, of course, is actually Yahweh. So when we see Jehovah, or Yehovah, and Yahweh, it gets a little confusing. Which is which? It's the same. It's both. Uh, Yehovah came to us again as a transliteration of Yahweh because we didn't want to say Yahweh. So again, we got for a moment there we had lost the, the way to pr actually pronounce it. And it's through this name. Now, here's what we got to know about this. Why do I tell you all this? It's through this name that God reveals himself to us to have a personal relationship. Right? We say it all the time, we emphasize this in youth group, you know, once a month at least, that God created you to have a relationship with him. What do we base that on? We base it on this. We base it on Exodus 3.14, when God says, that's who I am. I am your personal God. I have a personal relationship with you. That's the personal relationship when we're talking about Yahweh. We're talking about the personal side of God. He is the I am, and he's there for you. 
getting deeper into the, the meaning and in, in, in the depth of Yahweh, um, talking about the personal side of God, it's the breath of life that God breathed into Adam. We were talking about that, and I've talked about it several times. I hit it most recently on Ash Wednesday. When God created Adam, right, he didn't say, let there be humans. No, he created Adam out of the dust, formed him out of the dust. And then he didn't say about the human, he didn't say, let there be life, right? He breathed the breath of life. He breathed Yahweh into Adam's lungs. And if you think about it, it's almost the sound that we make when we breathe. You know, if you, ta- if you audibly breathe, it's almost like we're saying, Yahweh, Yahweh. And we think of that as the breath of life, the breath of God, the breath of heaven that came down to earth. The Emmanuel, God the creator, God with us, God in the flesh. And the God in the flesh declared Yahweh, the breath of life, the I am, several times. You saw it there in John 8, right? John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, Yahweh, I am. And if you ever hear anybody tell you or try to say that Jesus never declared himself as God the Father, John 8, 58. Oh, maybe he was just saying that. Oh, really? Well, then why didn't, verse 59, why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because he was blaspheming. He was saying the name that we're trying to avoid. So much so that we've altered the way we spell it. So much so that the scribes don't speak it. So much so that we've almost removed it from our language and say something different so we don't mess this one up, right? Jesus stood tall and said, that's who I am. And Jesus didn't stop there. Now remember, this is the personal relationship with God. This is the God, the Savior that we're talking about here. That revealed himself back to Moses in Exodus to lead them out, to save them, right? And Jesus came to lead us out of death. They were so confused in chapter 8. What do you mean you're not going to die? What do you mean the prophets didn't die? No, Jesus said, if you're with me, death is just an absolute gateway to eternal life. There is no death anymore. You just go from one and you go to the other. You transfer from one to the other and I'll be there to transfer you because I am. And Jesus, again, didn't stop there with the I am statements. He says, I am the vine. Remain in me. I am the door. Enter and be saved. I am the light of the world. In me there's no darkness or shadow of turning. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The big one that he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So anyone who believes in me will not die, will not perish, but will have eternal life. Why is it important to know the names of God? Why is it important for us to understand who God says that he is? Come to know Jehovah, come to know Yahweh. Come to know the great I am who was and is and is to come because it's everything that we base ourselves on. We still have that A.W. Tozer quote. I don't want to really end with this, but I think I'm going to. 
The most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And now I want to ask you again, what are those thoughts based on? Are they based on culture? Are they based on good feelings? Or are they based on who God says he is and who God says that you are? He says, you are my masterpiece and I have come to save you. I am. I have always been. I am now and I always will be. Who was and is and is to come. Picking up what I'm putting down? Can I get an amen here? All right, let's stand please.